books don't change people's temperature. Reading good, solid, reform, pure to literature, reading especially the classics, that's had the biggest impact on my life. G'day and welcome to the Reformers Bookcast, a podcast put on by Reformers Bookshop. This episode of the Archives season, between, between seasons season, if you like, is with a, a, a man named Kelly Capick. He's an author of several books and I actually really enjoyed uh, chatting with him. He's uh, been through all sorts of difficult things in his life and so we spoke about suffering and the book of Job. It was a very enjoyable discussion, and I hope you enjoy it as well. G'day, uh, Tom here from Reformers Bookshop. Welcome to another Reformers interview. Um, we're very uh, privileged to have Kelly Capick along with us. Kelly is uh, the Professor of Theological Studies at Covenant College in the US, yep. um, and he's over at Christ College here for the Refocus Conference, and we just heard him speak. It was really wonderful. Mm, uh, Kelly is uh, a, a student, if you like, of John Owen. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can, you can see here a couple of his books where he's edited John Owen's works for the, the modern reader. Uh, most recently, he, the, the God Who Gives has been um, published, which we'll talk about in a minute, and uh, also quite recently, Embodied Hope, which is some theological meditations on suffering. We'll also have a have a chat about. Uh, we also have John McLean with us from Christ College. Yep. John is the vice principal of Christ College, and it's, it's great to have you with us as well. Good, yeah. Uh, John, why don't you start um, with the God who gives? Okay, good. Thanks. Uh, so when I read this book, it reminded me of a line from another book, which I've just been reading as mm. well. Fred Sanders' book, The Deep Things of God, oh, where yeah. he talks about God is the gospel or mm. communion with God, um, knowing that God gives himself to us and brings us to himself is what the gospel's about and mm. everything else is either a preparation for that or a consequence of that. It seemed to me, like, in some ways, this book is just an expansion, not just an expansion. Right, right, right. <laughs> it is a wonderful expansion on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That grace and the doctrine of the Trinity just go together so carefully. Yeah. Um, I, that, that well, I, I really love how you put that. I, I think that's the surprise is we're very familiar with these things. We know the Christian story, but then as we talk about doctrines, we can lose sight of what it's actually about. And it's not actually about primarily justification by faith, mm. as beautiful as that is. It's not primarily about this or that. It's about God, <laughs> that the gospel is the coming of the Son um, and the gift of the Spirit, and that the gospel is God himself. Yep. And um, then, But trying to unpack what that means is, in terms of creation and fall and redemption and um, the life of the church. So yeah, yeah, no, I think that's actually a nice, simple way to put it, is the big surprise is that God gives himself. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think the book really helpfully shows that as you keep that as the kind of grounding, it helps you keep the other doctrines in their hmm. relationship to the big idea and in their relationship with each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and keeps reminding you that the gospel truths that we know and love are genuinely revelation of God. They, yes. You actually get to know God that's, that's by it. knowing how he saves. I love it. I love that you said they're, they're actually a revelation of God. Yeah. They're not a revelation about a textbook. They're a revelation of God. Hmm. This is him and his greatest self-revelation is his son 
and then his spirit, who always draws us to the Son. So that revelation is God's self-revelation. No, oh, it's great. It's good. So I guess I'm interested to know, can you pinpoint exactly the motivations for writing the book? Yeah, well, it's a longer story than you're probably interested in. It wasn't a book I had started that I was going to write. It, it, it started out uh, probably over a decade ago. I was doing some research, and a former student of mine was working with an organization. And long story short, it, it's an organization called Generous Giving. And they were interested in the topic of generosity for Christians, mm -hmm. but they realized they needed some theology. And I kind of reluctantly backed into it. And Justin Borger, who helped me uh, with the research and stuff, was my former student. Um, but then as I started really digging into it, I realized this is a beautiful way to talk yeah. about the gospel because we use the language of grace all the time. But the language of gift is actually the gratia. It's, it's the same yeah. word, but we lose its meaning. Yeah. And when you start to explore it in terms of gift, it takes on some fresh what I started to see is this is a beautiful way to talk about the gospel through the lens of gift. Yeah. And that is what took me into it. And then it, it ended up a lot more theology than they were originally <laughs> hoping for, um, but, but really rich. Yeah. So that, that was the yeah. earlier motivation. And I, I think that's right about grace because it becomes a kind of technical word. Yes. Which, which has all these sort of formal definitions around right. and we lose touch with what, you know, the fundamental message right. of the word. Yeah, it's not just transactional. That, that a gift, when, when a parent gives a child a gift, they want you not just to receive it, but to enjoy it. Yeah. Rather than grace can sound mathematical at times. You know, say, no, 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 this is a gift from God. God's given himself. He wants you to enjoy him. Yeah. And to just receive the gift and set it down is to miss it altogether. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and good. just in the session before, the, before we recorded this interview, you were talking about the importance of communion mm. with God. And obviously that flows... From that, no, I mean, communion with God is continuing to enjoy the central gift. Yeah, that's right. Of, of the gospel. Yeah. To, and, and just kind of trying to think through, in some ways, the simple idea of the Christian faith is loving God and loving neighbor. And we're able to love God and neighbor because we have first been yeah. loved. And so helping us understand that love uh, mentally, emotionally, uh, communally, um, Anyways, it's, it's exploring all of that. So that's part of the ambiguity intentionally in the title of, you know, um, how the Trinity shapes the Christian story. It shapes the Christian story of creation, fall, redemption, but it also shapes the Christian story of our lives, yeah. right? You know, I'm str I strongly believe we're Trinitarian not because we read a book about it, but because we experienced the love of the Father as we encounter the Son yeah. in the power of the Spirit. So we're Trinitarian before we've ever thought about it because we've experienced it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so your explanation about the origin of the book helps, to, kind of already answers one of the questions I mm. did have, which was I was struck by how much the economic angle yeah, came yeah, yeah. into the book and how yeah. often you turn to talk, think about our, our generosity with our yeah. possessions. So obviously well, some of that came from yeah, the Yeah, it, it definitely reason. did. And it, it forced me. So one of the early things was to start reading in Genesis and read all the way through with this theme in mind. And it was stunning. Um, that's why there's the first chapters on creation and starting to think of creation as a gift. And, but, but then once you see all of that, you get this large perspective. Then all of a sudden you see in Corinthians, 
you see in First John, where you, these biblical authors, like John is a perfect example. He's talking about the cross of Christ. You don't get any higher theologically than that. And then in the next sentence, he'll talk about what you do with your pocketbook. And you think, how are we talking about the yeah. cross of Christ and then giving money to your friend or, you know, or to your neighbor? But in his mind, that all goes together because those who have experienced God's generosity move toward the widow, the orphan, those in need. And so what I realized is we trying to, if you say, should Christians be generous? We all say, yeah, that, you know, yeah. that's a good, but it's kind of like a cherry on top. Mm -hmm. Rather than this is actually fundamental to experiencing God's grace. And so all of a sudden you read Isaiah and God is really upset. People who are offering sacrifices, who are making prayers, doing these things that God had commanded, but because they're neglecting the orphan and the widow, God says, your prayers are stench to me. Mm. And so it's, it's actually the nitty gritty. It's the economic. And I think, you know, the gospel is political, but it's not about like in America, a political party, <laughs> yeah. but it's the kingdom of God. And that has ramifications with how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our loves, yeah. you know. So, yeah, that, that those, and it surprised me to see how often biblically those concrete things come yeah. up. And in some ways, it uncomfortably forced me to do that. I can imagine, yeah. Um, because Reformed evangelicals have not typically been very strong on right. economic implications. Yeah, that's um, right. But it's actually there. It's, 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 it's so much it's in the Bible. It's there. It's yeah. stunningly there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, if it's not too kind of self-referential or whatever it is to keep talking about the talk you just gave yeah. that we just heard, <laughs> uh, you were talking about the mortification, vivification pattern and uh, applying that to issues of lust and slander. But as you were talking about, I was thinking there's a economic application as well that we're often pretty good at saying don't be materialistic yeah. uh, you know don't be wrapped up in your possessions don't make them an idol but that's only mortification yeah right? vivification is be generous oh i love yeah. that that's exactly right and no that's right and so yes don't be so wrapped up cross but the resurrection is now we give and, and that's what's amazing right in acts um where all of a sudden they're giving their stuff away. And it's, it's interesting in America, 40 years ago when I was, all these conservative Christians are immediately saying, this isn't communism, yes. right? <laughs> or this isn't socialism. Anyway, of course, that, that's not what's going on. But what's happened is they've encountered the risen Christ and now they're back in, in, in the garden. Yep. And they realize this is all God's. Right. Exactly. Yep. And so, and, or ultimately not going back, but to yep. the, 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 the new Eden. Yeah. And you think, yeah, they're just these implications. And it's not about being socialist or capitalist. It's about, oh, this is God's. Yeah. And, um, and there really are these concrete, practical ways that this influences our lives. Not about legalism, but like you said, that's actually life, is to discover you can actually allow people to flourish and, and the joy of it is get better to give than to receive that kind of thing. Mm. So, easier said than That's done. Right. I'm not <laughs> to, to to think about it and write about it is very different than being a master of it in your own life. But but it's there biblically, and we know yeah. it's true experientially. So. Yeah, it make, makes me think I'm, I'm I'm a young father, got young kids, so I've yeah. been thinking about how to be a dad. And, um, 
one of the things I did was read through John and saw how God was described as a father. Yeah. And the big thing that hit me was he was described as generous. Yes. And you know, often we think oh, I've got to be a, dis- a disciplinarian or I've got to be a teacher. Or, and I, I, I don't know if that comes out at all. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's great. Yeah. yeah. No, that's... Um, well, even John Owen, who has this... Well, the book Communion with the Trained God, he frames the whole book from the benediction in Corinthians where it talks about the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, fellowship of the Spirit. And I think part of the most powerful section is very short on the Father, but it's the love of the Father. And what Owen helps explore is we tend to think of the Father as full of wrath and angry. And Owen beautifully unpacks it. And basically like what you're saying is, no, 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 this is a generous Father. This is a Father who delights in you. And he warns us we tend to have hard thoughts about God where we tend to think God is just angry. And Owen realizes that's everything against what God wants you to come to him when things are hard, not run away from him. Um, so, no, you're, you're right. That, I think that's in, but very important for us to wrestle with. And, and because for various psychological and other reasons, I think we just default into thinking him cruel or just quick to punish. Rather than like you find in John, this is a stunningly generous, patient, forgiving God. So, yeah. Which is a, a, a great segue. You've moved into the concepts that you actually talk about in Embodied Hope. Around, oh, right. Yep. Around the, when we go through suffering, we're tempted to have these hard thoughts about God. Um, it's the same, same wording you use. And, um, and in that context, one of the things that, that struck me about Embodied Hope was this idea that you say, when we see suffering, we, we often want to um, try and explain how God can be a good God and yet allow suffering in people's lives. And that's right. a good conversation to have and, and to think through ourselves. But when you're dealing with someone who's suffering, you say in your book that we need to actually more have pastoral care and theological instincts. Can you maybe unpack a bit for us what, what you mean by those two phrases? Yeah, no, that's good. Um, I think what happens is we tend to make enemies of what should be friends. And so some people personality and training wise love theology. And some of us who love theology uh, treat the Christian life like it's about bricklaying. And so you get a doctrine, you put the brick down and you get another doctrine, you put the brick down and you just build on top of each other. And so when you face a problem, you, you try and figure out what brick to lay first. And, and okay. yeah. um, but it's very almost strict and mathematical and clear. And so you're just trying to, you're listening pastorally thinking, I just need to give them the right answer, mm-hmm. right? And then other people who are more gifted in pastoral care realize that is nothing like what it's really, you know, that's not how you love people well. And it's far more like a, um, so I'm trying to encourage something different. And, and the metaphor being rather than brick lane to think of, theology and pastoral care like gardening and a good gardener does need to know about the weather they need to know about the soil and sometimes soil needs more manure actually you know funny enough sometimes it needs more water if you put too much water you can so so water which is a good thing can also be deadly Um, and so so to be a good theologian and pastor means to try and figure out to, to have a good theology and then get your f- hands dirty. 
and figure out what is actually not just in the soil in Melbourne, but what's in the soil in my church here in Sydney in this particular case? What does it need? Because everything is different. Um, so it's just a lot more organic and it's, and it's messy. Um, I, I, I kind of think of James when he talks about, you know, how do you keep yourself pure? Uh, he talks about caring for the orphans and widows and keeping yourself you know, pure from the world. And what we tend to do is think either you care for the orphan and the widows or you keep yourself pure. And the keep yourself pure tends to be through retreat. And I think biblically in James and Isaiah, the surprise is you keep yourself pure by getting your hands dirty, <laughs> by caring for the orphan and the widow. It's very counterintuitive. Um, the way you, you are cleansed by blood is to get blood all over you, right? It's a weird biblical idea of we're covered in the blood of Christ, so we're white. You think, wait, how does that work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, sorry, that was me going on, but something along those lines. Yeah, okay. And so... Um, I guess the ana- the analogy makes sense to me. I'm a gardener as well, so oh, right. I, I I like you know to try and work out a, a particular plot, what's going to grow here, what's the soil like, all that sort of thing. But what does that what does that look like practically in a, in a church? You know, if there's a a pastor, but well, actually you you broaden it out and you say this is this pastoral care and this theological instinct is what all Christians need. Yeah. As we as we counsel, interact with each other. So what, what does that look like for? You know, me as I seek to care with my friend who's um, going through a tough time. Yeah, so I, you know, it's, um, it's very interesting. Uh, I, I actually do think all Christians are theologians. Um, in some, you're, they're not formal theologians, but the reason everyone's a theologian is theology is just a word about God, mm-hmm. right? At its most basic level. And either our, our words or our thoughts, even unspoken words, either they're of the God who is or they're in a, of an imaginary God. Yeah. And so it's, it's incumbent on all of us to be good theologians so we point people in their need to the God who is. Um, and, and that allows us to try and navigate. But, but the truths that shape us don't always, and I think this is where we get confused, a truth that's informing us doesn't need to necessarily be spoken to the person in need. Mm, okay. So while Romans is absolutely true that God works all things for good, I really think you should almost never quote that to someone who's just lost a child or something like that. It's not that you're don't believe it, but you have to look at how the verse is used, what's going on, and and um I think it's Happy Gilmore, which is probably a terrible movie. A long time ago, <laughs> but I, I do remember. I think one of those movies where um, what's his name? Um, what's that comedian? Anyways, he, it's one of his golfing movies, and he jokes and he keeps saying, "Be the ball, be the ball," right? Mm-hmm. And I always think there is something about being Adam Sandler, Adam Sandler right? right? Yeah. So he says, "Be the ball," and I always think, pastorally, be the verse, and you could yeah. take that in the yeah, wrong yeah, way. Yeah. But I always think you don't quote, you know, Romans eight to but you embody it by showing up, by listening, by lamenting with them. You are, you are being the verse. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's important because what you're doing is you're making those verses believable to them. And we get confused because we think the sentences are the most important. Mm -hmm. And often we have to help people through the shared experiences, allow those sentences to be more or less believable. 
And if we sound or feel cold and unconcerned, the verses are not believable. But if in our warmth, in our presence, in our shared grief, those verses then become very believable. So but what I'm saying is that often means we have to be the verse before they can hear the verse. Something like that. Mm. Okay. And of course, it's Job's comforters that are the exact example of what we don't. Right? Exactly. I mean, they were doing very well until they started talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, and then they over-explain and they yeah. think they've got all the answers. And you know, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's hard to work out exactly what Job and God's view of their answers right. are. But I don't think they're totally contradicted. Right. What Job's counselors give as explanation, God doesn't come back and say, well, that's completely wrong. But... It was the wrong time in the wrong place and tried to explain everything which, which they couldn't do. Oh, the, and Job's, fa- and I do talk some about Job in there, which is, it, Job is fascinating because I always ask pa- pastors, like, how are you going to preach through Job? Because th- this very problem, because you will, if you're preaching slowly through Job, you will preach from things his friends say that are basically true, but in the context, they become untrue. Yeah, yeah. And so you're going to end up as a pretzel. But, which is a fascinating thing, especially for, for those of us in the conservative Presbyterian world and, and reform. But, but here's the, what I found fascinating. Well, a couple of things about Job, and then you have to stop me. I'll, I'll try not to be too long. But two, two observations. First is very often historically and even like in contemporary philosophy textbooks, if they, they'll include a reading from Job, and it'll be from the first chapter or two and the very end. And when you ask people about the book of Job, normally that's what they think is important in the book of Job, the beginning and the end. And in theology post-Holocaust, there's been a big movement to say, no, 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 actually the important part of Job is the middle. All of the chapters of wrestling with God and with each other. Now, I think John and I would want to say, why do we have to pick, <laughs> right? The beginning matters in the middle. But I would say to, to us evangelicals, don't miss the 30 plus chapters of wrestling with God and each other. The fact is that's a lot of patience with God. Yeah. Where God just, and we feel guilty ever raising a concern, ever, you know, laments are all over. So that, that's one thing. But the other thing, and I don't have time to explain it, it's in the book, but the other thing that surprised me researching this is when you actually carefully look at Job, God's response to Job, I actually think there's nuance there I draw on some scholarship. So I think there's some nuance there that God is not being condescending in a way we think he is. I mean, God is very much saying, you're a creature and I am the creator. So that, that's clear. But actually, there is reasons to read in there compassion in mm. Job. And I would say, look at how James and others, when they talk about Job, he is, the, he is held up as a model. And even the way the book of Job ends, where he gets all of this stuff, um, I think sometimes we talk of Job in ways that don't actually fit the text. So then here's the big takeaway. In Job, God never actually answers Job's questions, which is weird when you think about it. The answer to Job's question is God's presence. And basically, it's an ellipsis. It's a dot, 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 right? And I don't think we get the answer of Job's question until we get Jesus. And the stunning part in light of the whole Bible is God's answers to Job, his answer to Job's question is that God becomes Job in his son. 
And in his son, he takes on the suffering and the grief and the lament and the physical ailments and ultimately death. God becomes Job in Christ and then rises. And so, so the answer, not being cheesy, but the answer is Jesus. And that's not actually in the book of Job. Anyway, so there's a lot more there. But I th- there's really beautiful things, I think, biblically going on. And, and it just to say pastorally, that means God is far more patient. And, and kind of the authors of Hebrews, author of Hebrews, we have this sympathetic high priest who, who with tears, right, the solidarity with us, but not just I, I feel your pain, but I've entered in and I can do something about it. Yeah. Which, so, which, sorry, that's a long answer. But. No, no, and it, and it plays into the, this other concept that I found really beautiful in the, in the book, which is um, you say some people have a binary view of hope and lament. Yeah. You, you either hope or you're lamenting. And I was actually talking to someone just the other day who was explaining how they have a friend who's you know, got this view. And I was like, oh, I just read a really good book on that. <laughs> but there's, you, you explained that it's actually more of a quadrant, which yeah. I'm an engineer and I love quadrants. So, um, and you say, you know, you can have hope with lament. And yeah. that's sort of the ideal scenario. You explain the other three as well. Right. But um, I, I can see how that comes through with mm. what Christ does. He laments yep. with us, yep. but provides that great hope. Yeah. Yeah, kind of a, a, I think biblically there's a hopeful realism. Mm. And it, it's hard to even convince Christians of this, but part of what's remarkable about Christianity is we don't have to be fake. Mm. The cross and the whole biblical story says we can look at the world and be brutally honest about how hard it is and about ourselves. And yet we can still hope. Yeah. We don't pick between, and sometimes we're, we lie about the world and we think, Oh, this terrible thing happened. Well, God did it to you, so it must not be bad. And I think in reform circles, we have some misunderstanding about the sovereignty of God that can create some problems. But we can say it's really bad and God is really good and we can be hopeful. But we don't have to lie about this world. God doesn't want us to lie. Um, So, When I was in pastoral ministry in a country town, so I used to take lots of funerals for yeah. non-Christian families who had some sort of church connection. I used to notice non-Christian funerals will either go in two ways. Either they're very phlegmatic. He had his innings. Mm. What can you expect? He was 70. Oh, well, right. that's it. It's, ve- it's a realism with no Hope. greater expectation yeah. than we've had as good as we can get. Or absolutely devastatingly tragic. Mm. You know, the family in the sitting in the front pew just distraught, just distraught and not, and with no answer but then a really Christian funeral has both the horror and and sorrow of death and that it's the real enemy and this is not the way things are meant to be and yet has a note of hope in the, yeah. in the midst of that that just embodies yeah that in the way in the contrast to the other yeah. ways in which I think our culture tends to handle death you know? yeah Oh, I think that's, I, and funerals are kind of a That's the very, test, isn't it? It, it right. is, it is. And, and, and I, I wrote Embodied Hope primarily for Christians, um, although some non-Christians have, I, I've heard from, which is nice. But, and, I, and I want to encourage Christians, like in the funeral, to be able to, to, to weep, mm. right? 
but also to have yeah. hope. And and sometimes it's and you've I'm sure found this pastorally. Sometimes Christians don't feel like they're allowed yes, to, that's and right. then they you get into like trouble, right? And you want to say, listen, it's not an either or. You can you can it, and sometimes strangely, at the same moment you can feel both. Yeah. They're not necessarily in a yeah. row. Sometimes you feel you feel both. But they, when you when you when the, when it's in the light of the gospel, they actually feed off each other, don't they? Because, yeah. Because we have the horizon of glory. Because we know that this world is not what it's meant to be. We're longing for something else. That in some ways makes us lament more. Yeah, that's a very because nice now point. Yeah, is not what it's meant to be. Yeah, uh, and yet as we lament as Christians, we then look to our hope. You're hopeful, and, yeah. And so they actually are meant to build on one another. That's that's beautiful. I like that's great. Mm. That's very helpful. Fantastic. Yep. Um, so mo- moving on to books. Yeah. Um, we like to see people reading great books, and we like to ask people um, in in your sort of position. What, what sort of books you think people should be reading? Um, what advice you give in terms of selecting books to, to get into? Yeah, it's very, I mean, it, it, some, it's a little difficult in this kind of setting because you want to know, you know, you want to ask, well, tell me about what you know, what yeah, you yeah, don't yeah, know. Yeah, Are you yeah. interested in pastoral things? Are you a laity or whatever? But in general, one of the things, it, it depends on how much background they have. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things, you, when we corresponded earlier, one of the things I mentioned is, depending if you have some background, assuming you have some background, then I definitely encourage people reading from different time periods mm-hmm. and from people who are different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I don't want Americans simply reading American evangelical authors. Yeah. Um, from I, the modern day. Yeah, from yeah. the modern day. Um, you know, it's interesting... Uh, Protestants, you know, think, oh, Catholics, they have a pope. That's Listen, conservative evangelicals have popes. (laughs) And it it can be a huge problem. And they've read everything from one individual. Mm -hmm. And and the the reality is all of us have strengths and weaknesses and blind spots. So one of the things I encourage is people to read Christians from the different periods. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this wonderful introduction to Athanasius, who's an early church father, had a, a little volume called On the Incarnation, and C.S. Lewis wrote an introduction uh, for one of its publications, and he talks about why we read old books. And um, and he basically says, well, I'll, I'll put it the way I would think about it, but all of us have blind spots, but one of the problems culturally is we tend to, it's like in a marriage, you tend to share blind spots, and so you don't know what they are. So if you read someone from the third century, uh, they don't have the same blind spots as you. Now, one of the things that it's a danger in reform communities, we do this with the reformers or with the Puritans, they had blind spots too. They were sinners, right? There are some deeply problematic... If you're an African-American and you're being told to, to study the Puritans, if the person telling you to study the Puritans doesn't acknowledge some of the problems there, we've got ourselves an issue, Right. So Athanasius in the you know, early church, the reformers, whatever, they all had sins. But interestingly enough, when you read them from centuries later, you don't tem- tend to be tempted by the same things. <laughs> so C.S. Lewis is saying, it's not that we don't have to romanticize them. They sinned, but they're tempted by things you won't be. But it also means they weren't tempted by your things. Right, so Athanasius was not dealing with the materialism of 21st century America. 
And so all of a sudden, where you read him, you think, whoa, whatever our sins are. And so it just kind of, and Lewis, in Lewis kind of way, he says, you know, if we could read books from the future, they'd be just as good. <laughs> but we don't have access to them. So I, I do think encouraging people to read Luther, to read a Calvin, to read an Owen, to read an early church father or mother, I think is very, and I, I encourage men to read female authors, um, female theologians, females doing ministry, I think it's very important and it's, it's been an area of neglect, to be honest with you. And uh, similarly, we don't think twice about asking women to read men. So I, I think this is a growing area of need for us that can help us see some of our own blind spots and weaknesses. So I, that would That's be wonderful. That's very helpful, thank you. I think it's in that piece by Lewis that he says you should read, I can't remember what the formula is, like three old books for every new Yeah, yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. And I, I think that's fascinating. And, and if you, it just reorients your world. And I would say one of the good things, this isn't always the case, but lots of them are short. Yes, yes, <laughs> and true. we write too big of books these days. So, yeah. I mean, Owen wrote too yes, big of books right. too, but <laughs> if you go to the early church fathers, they're small, so you'll yeah, be all right. Yeah, very good. Um, maybe our last question. I'd love you to pitch in here as well, John, but um, what's maybe one tip you could give give our listeners that's helped you in your reading to get the most out of out of books i think you should go first i've been talking too much <laughs> uh, well i think i mean whether it's historical or contemporary i think understanding the context in which mm. the book is written can really help if especially if you're really trying to understand a book so yeah um i mean that's one of the reasons i like going to conferences mm. and hearing authors speak because often yeah. they explain something to you mm. And you say, oh, why that's what that book's yeah, really yeah, about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but the same with reading older authors. Um, I mean, you can read it at, at, just kind of at the face, but often when you understand a little bit about mm. what the background was and what the issues were that they were dealing with, you see far more pointedly what they're trying to achieve and appreciate it more. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, really I think good. that's... That's great advice. That doesn't get you through a lot of books quickly. No. <laughs> I would say, though, building on that, I would say in some ways read as a bookstore. This may discourage you, but I would say <laughs> buy a lot, but probably read less, but read it well, you know. Yes, yes. Um, and I was talking with someone who your bookstore would have a lot of his books, and, and he's a, an older generation than, than I am and in a moment, and so I won't tell you his name. But you would know he is, and in a moment of quiet confession to two of us, he said, I barely ever finish a book these days. Yeah. And I, but actually, it was really helpful for me to hear that, because it depends on the book, but how many books do deserve cover-to-cover -cover reads? Mm -hmm. And, and it, it depends. I, I think, you know, we've got, some books really do, but, but I would read well, read carefully, and if it's just fluff, then maybe you don't need the whole thing. Uh, get the main idea. But, you know, even just practically, I encourage you to, Read with a pen, mark it up, you know, just mess it up. Um, ask your, and, and don't romanticize people. Allow, them, allow yourself to disagree and maybe let them win you over. But, but we, I do think there's some danger of romanticizing or celebrityism and some of that. So you, engage. You're a fellow reader of the Bible. You, you have the spirit of God in you. You're part of God's church. So, but what is in there that's really so, yeah. And that's really what a book is, isn't it? It's a, it should be a dialogue. Yeah, that's right. The, the author's trying to convince you of something yep. and you, you can wrestle with that. Yep, yeah, that's right. Well, thank you very much for this. That's very helpful. Oh, um, thanks thank for having you, us. Thank you, John. And Good. thank you, Thanks Kelly, for having me, Sydney. Thanks. Yeah.